This morning I had a chance to meet the students here. Last week I met the advanced students and the faculty. And I can't tell you how impressed I am by, one, the very fact that Jewish studies exists here, but also by how, by the level and the quality of Jewish studies um, here in China, the quality of the papers that were given last week in Beijing, um, and the level of the questions that were raised this morning. Um, I want to thank, first of all, the University of Chicago Center in Beijing for supporting the workshop last week and enabling me to come to China. I want to thank the American Cultural Exchange Center of the University at Shandong University, which is enabling my visit here in particular today. And I want to thank Professor Yoda Fu for all of his help, not only inviting me, but really in co-organizing the workshop with me in, in, in Beijing. And we very much hope that we will be able to develop this relationship into more conferences and visits um, by faculty from Chicago to Shandong and people from Shandong coming to Chicago and to America. Um, if any of you have any questions about that, you know, after the talk, feel free to email me. I'll be happy to answer your questions and, um, and, um, and help in any way that I can. Um, before I begin the actual talk, I thought it might be helpful if we just read through. Well, how many of you, let me ask, are familiar with the story of the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22 in, 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 in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible? All of you know the story? <laughs> okay, so then, then I won't take the time. But if I'll give you out, I have a couple of copies here of the text, and I'm going to be referring to some verses. So just if you want to check those, okay, during the talk, you'll have that. But if you could, return those to me. You can keep the handouts, the rest of the handout, but those I might need for another talk that I'm going to give. So if you could return those, I would, I would appreciate it. <clears throat> One of Maimonides' great legacies to Jewish thought was philosophical scriptural exegesis. He wasn't the first to engage in this enterprise. There were earlier Philo of Alexandria in the first century, Sadia, Abraham ibn Ezra within the Islamic world. But Maimonides inspired and initiated a live tradition of philosophical interpretation of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible, during the Middle Ages. And we can trace a line of philosophical interpreters from Maimonides on carrying out a program that he envisioned. Maimonides himself did not write a running commentary on the Torah. However, in the introduction to the Guide of the Perplexed, his great philosophical work, which Professor Fu has translated into Chinese, okay, <clears throat> he tells us that the Guide has two purposes. One, to explain the multiple meanings of ambiguous terms in, in the Torah and Scripture. And second, to identify and interpret very obscure parables in prophetic books. In light of these statements, 
Many Maimonides scholars today approach the guide as a work of philosophical, biblical interpretation rather than as a traditional philosophical treatise or as theological kalam. But different scholars have different understandings of Maimonides' project. One view shows, and this I talked about last week in Beijing, shows how Maimonides decodes or translates scriptural terms and claims into Aristotelian categories, terminology, and doctrines by establishing semantical equivalences, synonymies if you were, between words or concepts. So the Hebrew word isha for woman means matter. The Hebrew word tselem for image means form. And in the case of the human being, his intellect, what makes him the kind of, of, of individual he is. On this approach, the aim of the guide, or the aim of the exegesis, is to harmonize by equating philosophy and scripture. A second approach, which I'm going to talk about today, which is the approach that I'm following, doesn't try to show how the Bible can be harmonized with philosophy by reading it as or translating it into Aristotle. Instead, it aims to work out how Maimonides might have read the Torah as a work with its own distinctive philosophy. The Bible is not Aristotle, but it emerged from a rich philosophical world that Maimonides believed existed in ancient Israel with competing schools roughly parallel to all the schools that were known in the Arabic philosophical world. So you had Aristotelians and Platonists and Stoics and theologians and skeptics and, um, and, and, and Epicureans. The philosophical arguments for and against Aristotelian views that are found in the guide are not borrowed to philosophically legitimate the law, nor are they a key to decipher scripture. Rather, they provide a context for original philosophical positions that Maimonides finds expressed, especially in the Bible. He takes the Bible to be the exemplary philosophical work of all time. It was the greatest work of philosophy that was ever produced. In this talk, I want to walk you through one example of Maimonidean philosophical exegesis, biblical exegesis. The text for my lesson is Genesis 22, the story of the binding of Isaac. In Hebrew, it's called the Akedah, one of the most familiar yet horrifying stories in the Torah. And I'll assume that you know the plot. Its best known interpretation, and since the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, the philosophically most influential one, is that its lesson lies in Abraham's absolute but absurd faith in God's promise to make him into a nation as numerous as the stars in heaven. In other words, God promised Abraham that he would give him children and they would become a multiple nation. Now he commands him to sacrifice his son. How then is he going to have grandchildren? Okay, um, He has complete faith in God that somehow or other God 
will enable him to have progeny, to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and to become as numerous as the stars in heaven, even though he's commanding him to kill his son. That's simply faith, okay? A second widely held explanation focuses on Abraham's unconditional, unquestioning obedience to God. He simply obeys his word, doesn't challenge it. In rabbinic thought, the Akedah is called a Nisayon. Do I have a blackboard here? Does that work? Um, here. A Nisayon. Wait, wait, wait. It just, is that right? Wait, wait, wait. No, Joe's, Joe's. <laughs> oh, this, sorry. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Nisayon, all right, which comes from the Hebrew word Nisa. I'm going to leave that untranslated for the moment, okay? That figures in the opening verse like a title for the story. And the, the first verse is, and after these events, and God nisa Abraham, okay? For some, this means that God put Abraham to the test, made him undergo an ordeal, suffer. For others, Nisa, which derives from another Hebrew, can also um, be derived from another Hebrew word, nasos, means that Abraham was made to serve as an example, exemplar, a best example, something like a banner, which is held aloft that everyone sees and can follow, <clears throat> imitate, emulate. As an extreme example of this kind, in medieval crusader Germany, Ashkenaz, northern France and Germany during the Middle Ages, the Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac, was used as a model to justify acts of self-martyrdom and child martyrdom. Parents killed their children when faced with the demand to convert to Christianity or violate the Torah to do something which is forbidden. Rather than convert, rather than transgress the law of the Torah, they martyred themselves, they killed themselves, or they even killed their children. These martyrs, inspired by Abraham's love and fear of God, actually saw themselves as executing an act that Abraham failed to, work, to carry out. All these assumptions, faith, obedience, a trial, a model for, for martyrdom, share one assumption. The assumption is this. Had the angel not intervened in verses 11 and 12, that's where if you look at the text, that's where the, the angel cries out to, um, to Abraham, his hand is lifted up to slaughter Isaac, and says, do not touch the child. Now I know that you really fear God. Okay? Okay. If not for the angel's intervention, Abraham would have carried through the sacrificial act, and for that, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, he is to be praised and blamed. Praised and rewarded, sorry. So the lesson of the Akedah, Abraham's exemplary act, lies entirely in the first 10 verses of the chapter. From the initial divine command and God commands Abraham to take Isaac and go to this land and offer him to God, to the moment when Abraham stretches out his hand to raise the knife to sacrifice Isaac. 
Everything else in the story is that it follows. The angel's intervention, the sacrifice of the ram instead of Isaac, the angel's blessing, is all post-climactic. Okay? It's after the really important part. This reading of the Akedah, focusing on Abraham's unhesitating, unquestioning obedience or faith manifest in the first 10 verses, raises all sorts of, of questions. These are wonderfully illustrated in a passage recited every morning in the daily rabbinic prayers in which worshipers ask God to, quote, remember his covenant with Israel, his loving kindness, his chesed, and the oath he swore to Abraham the patriarch on Mount Moriah. The liturgy, the liturgy continues, and this is number one on your handout. Do you have that? And let there appear before you, O Lord, Abraham's binding of Isaac, his son, on the altar. Just as Abraham conquered his mercy to do your will wholeheartedly, so may your mercy conquer your anger, that's God's anger, at us. Now, we usually do not praise parents for conquering, that is, suppressing their mercy for their own children whose lives are threatened, especially by the parents themselves. Although religions do praise people for wholeheartedly carrying out God's will, Abraham's obedience demands that he act hard-heartedly. Could that really be what obedience to God requires? Nor is the analogy between God and Abraham that underlies the prayer clear. Why should God's mercy conquer his anger if Abraham's mercy for Isaac does not conquer, but is conquered by his obedience? Okay. And is it really Abraham's mercy for Isaac that has to be conquered by his obedience to God? Given the analogy, we would think that it would be Abraham's anger at God that must be conquered by his obedience, just as God's mercy conquers his own anger. Perhaps the author of the liturgy simply could not bring himself to explicitly acknowledge Abraham's understandable, but still, anger at God, hence he settled on his mercy for Isaac. Maimonides turns this received interpretation of the Akedah, the interpretation underlying this prayer, on its head. He begins by rejecting two standard medieval theodicies. A theodicy is a justification of evil, of suffering, exemplified by the Akedah, that privilege its first 10 verses. On the first of these accounts, the point of the Akedah was to prove the degree of Abraham's faith or obedience. But since the only person being present at the event that this could have been proven to was God, nobody else was up there, Isaac, Abraham, and God, Maimonides objects that this interpretation presupposes that God, if he's learning now that Abraham is obedient, that presupposes that God was previously ignorant of Abraham's obedience. Okay? And it also assumes that God learns something, so God changes. 
Both ignorance and change are imperfections for the medievals or right in God. The second rejected theodicy, which again is focused on the first 10 verses, responds to the apparent divine injustice in putting a righteous individual like Abraham to, the t to this ordeal. The justification, the explanation is that, is that by undergoing the Akedah, the, the, the binding of Isaac, Abraham merited or earned greater compensation or happiness in the future. In other words, he suffers now in order to be rewarded with an even greater reward afterwards in the world to come after his death. To that kind of explanation, Maimonides objects even if he's going to be rewarded later on, Abraham's suffering at the time that he suffers, at the moment that he's called upon to sacrifice Isaac, was undeserved. And therefore, it was unjust at the moment of the sacrifice itself. Okay? But of course, God never unjustly makes any human being suffer. He only, human beings only suffer because they've sinned, they've transgressed, and therefore, in some sense, they deserve the punishment, the suffering. So that second justification, like the first one, has to be rejected. But the problems for which these rejected explanations are proposed as solutions are problems only so long as you take those first 10 verses to be the moral of the story. Having rejected the two explanations, Maimonides next undermines their underlying interpretive motivation. First, he shifts the significance of the Akedah from the event which is described by the story, whatever actually happened in the world, Abram going up there, offering Isaac, and so on, to the scriptural text itself. After all, if the, if the story is meant to be some sort of model for us, for you, other human beings to follow, to imitate, what we know is the text of the story. We weren't present at the event, so the real model has to be the text of, in other words, chapter 22 of Genesis. That has to be the actual exemplar, the model. Okay? Second, once he shifts the attention from the event described by the text to the text itself, to Genesis, all right, he then shifts the weight of the chapter from the first 10 verses to include the end of the story as well verses 11 through 18, or 19, to include the angel's commandment not to, not to sacrifice Isaac, and its aftermath, the sacrifice of the ram. The end, that is the point of the story, lies for Maimonides in its ending, the last verses. What is that point? Well, Maimonides writes that the Akedah contains two great notions that are fundamental principles of the law. And I'm really only going to talk about the first of these today. The first, and this is on your handout, this is in 2A. Okay, Do you see this? Is the limit, he says it comes to teach, the first of the great notions, is the limit of the love for God and fear of him. This is 2A on the handout. If you look at two toward the bottom of the page, or right, A, the very beginning it says it contains two great notions, 
that are fundamental principles of the law. One of these notions consists in our being informed of the limit of love for God and fear of him. That is up to what limit they must reach. Okay. Now almost all the commentators, both medieval commentators and modern commentators, take Maimonides to mean by the limit of the love and fear of God that the Akedah teaches us the limitlessness of the love and fear of God. That the love and fear of God has no limits. If you want to really love and fear God, you have to do everything you possibly can and then some to demonstrate one's love and fear of God. So you really have to, what's the most that any human being can do? Give up his own life for God. Give up the life of his child for his God. I want to propose that what Maimonides means by limit is limit. What the Akedah teaches is that there is a limit to the love and fear of God. And if there's a limit, there can also be excessive love and fear of God. Love and fear in God that goes beyond the limit, that is more than is required. The Akedah teaches that one must respect a limit even when it comes to God. Abraham initially recognized and respected no limit with respect to love of God. His love and fear of God could bring him even to sacrifice Isaac. But the full Akedah story is more than those ten first ten verses. The end or point and the ending of the story is that Abraham does not sacrifice Isaac and instead sacrifices the ram, thereby marking a limit to the love and fear of God. The nisayon, the proof, all right, the demonstration to others, what it's a model of, lies in the conclusion of the story of the Akedah, not in its aborted beginning. In order to work out Maimandi's conception of the limit on, on the love and fear of God, let me take a moment here to fill in two pieces of background. First, from Maimandi's theory of parables, and this is something we talked about in Beijing, and second, from his theory of prophecy that Professor Yu talked about. Okay? And I've included summaries of this on the handout. Maimandi's tells us that one of the, the two purposes of the guide is to explain, the second one, obscure parables occurring in prophetic books that are not explicitly identified there as such. And I take him to mean by that, that there, not only is there no title on the word above the story that marks it as a parable, but that these parables, they're no, they're, that the, but that there are no superficial literary features at all that mark the, the prophetic parables. Um, as there are from later rabbinic parables, or as we think nowadays, we think of a parable as a kind of story where the characters in it are symbols for something else. All right? That's not necessarily the case for Maimonides. What is a parable for Maimonides? Well, as you can see on the handout, he thinks of a parable as any text that has multiple levels of meaning. And there are three of these. The, the vulgar, what I call the vulgar external meaning, this is on the handout, the parabolic external meaning, and the parabolic internal meaning. This is on the first page, this first section, all right? 
the three levels of meaning Maimonides theory of a parable. So the vulgar external meaning, as I wrote here, is how the vulgar, the common people, exclusively understand the text. That's roughly in terms of the lexical or philological meanings of its words. In other words, the linguistic meanings of its words. Okay? What we normally think of as the meaning of a word. And the case of narratives as a story or a history about events and individuals. So <clears throat> on its vulgar external meaning, Genesis 22 would be a historical narrative, would be written there in order to inform us of some event that occurred in the past, all right, um, in which, in which a, about a particular man named Abraham, commanded by a fickle god to sacrifice his son, the man silently obeyed, journeyed to a far off place, and once he got there and was on the verge of doing exactly what that God commanded, was ordered by the same fickle deity, in other words, a deity who changes his mind, not to carry out his command. According to Maimonides, whether or not any such event historically occurred, he doesn't really, he's not really interested in the historical reality, the significance of Genesis 22 that is, the reason why that story is included in the Hebrew Bible, in the scriptures, um, cannot lie in this vulgar interpretation, either to teach us something about the history of Israel, okay, or as ancient mythology. <clears throat> Instead, it's going to turn out to be a piece of wisdom. And that's what it means to say that it's a parable. Okay? And a, a text can be both a parable and have historically occurred. Okay? He's really not concerned with its historical reality. What we're interested in is, the quest, is answering the question, why did the Torah, why did the author of scripture choose to include this story in the text, in the Bible? And the answer to that is that it communicates a certain kind of wisdom, or multiple kinds of wisdom. Okay. Instead of its vulgar interpretation as a story about a particular individual, the value of Genesis 22 lies in reading it as a text of wisdom or wisdoms, according to what I wrote on the handout, are the parabolic external and internal meanings. These kinds of wisdom are both, are both of them what the text means. They differ, however, in their contents. Parabolic external meaning, and if you look in the text, contains wisdom that's useful in many respects, among which is the welfare of human societies. That is, it contains communal we welfare. It, it contains wisdom concerning communal welfare. It tells you truths about, or wisdom concerning the social, the material, the economic, the political, and also the intellectual good of the whole community. Maimonides thinks that communities should not only concern themselves with making sure that their citizens have the right law in order to prevent one another from harming each other, it should not only provide for the economic needs and desires of the citizens, so kind of social welfare state, it also should inculcate, should teach the citizens correct beliefs and values. And that's the intellectual welfare of the community. 
Okay? The people should hold the right beliefs. For example, they should know that God exists, that he's not a body. All right? They should value study and knowledge rather than the pursuit of sensual pleasures, all right? material pleasures. That's all part of the external meaning that communicates communal welfare. <coughs> Parabolic inner meaning expresses wisdom that's useful for beliefs concerned with the truth as it is. This is a somewhat difficult to understand formulation, but what Maimonides has in mind is what the wisdom that's relevant to individual perfection. That is, individual perfection, according to Maimonides, is perfection of the intellect, the individual acquiring all possible knowledge that there is to be had in physics, in metaphysics, in science, all right, in ethics, okay, actualizing all of his intellectual potential, all of his intellectual capacity, okay. Today, for reasons of time, I'm only going to talk about the parabolic external meaning, the wisdom that concerns communal welfare, right? What he wants everyone in the community to know. The inner meaning of the Yakeda will have to wait for another occasion, but if you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk about it. If you want to ask me about it during the question and answer period, I can discuss it then. Okay, so that's what I want to say about it's a parable, and we're going to talk about the communal wisdom that Maimonides thinks is communicated by the story of the Akedah, by not sacrificing Isaac. Now, a word about prophecy. And again, this is on the, the handout. Okay. On the usual view of prophecy, what's prophecy? Well, God or an angel on behalf of God speaks to or tells the prophet to do or to say something, to communicate some lesson to the community, say, to command the law to the community. So the prophet is the mouthpiece for God. God is speaking through the prophet. An angel speaks to the prophet, and then the prophet communicates that message to other people. Maimonides, and here he's drawing on his Arabic philosophical predecessors, turns this picture around. The first point, and this is number one on the handout, the prophet is not told something by somebody else. Uh, that is either by God or by God's angel. The, the, the prophet, like a philosopher or a scientist, first comes to know through his intellect, that is by reasoning or by direct intellectual intuition, he simply grasps some truth, all right? say, an abstract proposition of science or philosophy, no different from the way in which any philosopher or scientist or any of us grasp some truth. He reasons to it, he gives arguments, he figures it out using his mind, right, what the truth happens to be. The difference between the prophet and the ordinary philosopher or any of us is that after apprehending and grasping the abstract truth, the prophet, using a very well-developed imagination, translates that abstract truth into an image or a sensible representation or into a story or into a law or a ritual that can be understood even by those in the community, the common people, who cannot understand abstract truths as such. 
So for example, there's a story in the Bible, I don't know whether you people have read this, about the ladder of Jacob where he goes to sleep and he sees a ladder with angels going up and down the ladder, all right? Um, according to Maimonides, that's an imaginative representation of the prophet's knowledge of the structure of the physical world, its discovery by man, and of God, as the, and of God as the so-called prime mover, the ultimate cause of the natural world. I don't want to go into details. So what distinguishes the prophet from the non-prophetic knower, philosopher, or scientist is not the first stage when he grasps the abstract truth using all of them do that the same way through their intellects. Um, what distinguishes the prophet from the philosopher is the second stage in which the prophet uses his imagination to communicate the abstract truth he has grasped. But both stages are natural processes that can be explained in terms of human psychological faculties. To be sure, God <clears throat> is the original cause of the prophet grasping any truth. God is the original cause of everything that happens, all right, in the natural world, including the acquisition of knowledge. And to so to return now to the Akedah, the first implication for its interpretation is that when it says in the Bible that Abraham has the prophetic experience in which he's, quote unquote, commanded by God to offer up Isaac, what we should understand, what really is happening is there, is that Abraham, through his own understanding, comes to understand, to know, some abstract dictate or truth that's imaginatively expressed by the command to sacrifice Isaac. Okay? So in other words, <clears throat> well, let me go, go to the second point, then let me sum up, all right? So the first point is that when it says that Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac, what's really happening is that Abraham, through his own reasoning, arrived in knowledge of some truth, okay? The ultimate cause of his coming to know anything is, of course, God, who gave him an intellect, who, un who enables him to, to think through. But the, the basic idea is that Abraham come to, came to know some abstract truth, which he then imaginatively expresses as the commandment to sacrifice Isaac. And we'll have to see what that truth is. Okay, we'll get to that. The second claim about prophecy concerns angels. So if you look at verse 1, it says, and God spoke to Abraham. Okay? In verse 11, it says an angel spoke to Abraham. Now, like the Hebrew term for angel, Hebrew term malach, which means messenger, an angel from Maimonides is nothing but some sort of instrument, usually a natural instrument, instrument in other words, part of the natural world, which God uses as a tool, an intermediary, in order to cause some natural phenomenon, in this case, human intellectual apprehension. So angels, don't think of angels as human beings, like human beings, like sensible corporeal figures with wings and halos. What an angel is, is some power or faculty, like the intellect, or the imagination, or a physical force, like gravity, or the causes of the motions of the spheres. God, 
although he's the ultimate cause, even of what the intermediaries, the tools, the angels do, all right, God always works through an intermediary, an angel, a tool, a natural cause. And this holds true for prophetic experiences as well. So whether a verse explicitly mentions an angel or not, in reality, God always addresses prophets through angels. Okay? So even when the verse says, and God spoke to Abraham, it was really God using an angel who spoke to Abraham. And when it says the angel spoke to Abraham, it doesn't mean the angel alone. It means God speaking through the angel spoke to Abraham. And what it means by angel is not somebody else speaking to him, but Abraham's intellect or his imagination. It, as it were, is telling him in his own mind, all right, what, you know, what to do, what the truth is, okay? So addresses, when it says an angel addresses Abraham, it doesn't mean address in our sense, somebody speaking to or telling somebody something. Since angels aren't bodily beings, they don't have mouths with which to speak or arms with which to wrestle, like with Jacob. All descriptions found in the Torah of angels speaking or wrestling, or of God speaking, which has to be, again, through an angel, could only be imagined or having transpired within a vision or dream. In other words, if a prophet is said to see an angel with a certain bodily shape, all right, Abram sees the angel talking to him, okay? What's really happening is that the prophet's imagination is translating his knowledge of the functioning of an abstract force or power, like his intellect, grasping a truth into the concrete image of an angel who the prophet sees addressing him either in a vision or a dream. And when the imagination is functioning at its best, it projects its images out onto the external world, as if the imagined angel were really out there. We've all had dreams where we imagined, we dreamt, right? That's our imagination while we're sleeping, where we dreamt that somebody was talking to us. And then you wake up and discover there's nobody there and you were dreaming. Or you dreamt that you heard a sound, a bell, or a car. And then you wake up and you discover that, you, that, that really did not occur. You merely dreamt it. Okay? What Maimonides is saying is that in a prophetic experience, the prophet, right, first he grasps some truth, all right, using his intellect, okay, and then using his imagination, he not only translates that into some sort of an image, like a commandment to sacrifice Isaac, he also translates with his imagination his grasp of that truth into the image of, a pro of an angel speaking to him, commanding him, all right, to do that action, to sacrifice Isaac. And when his imagination is really vivid, it's almost as if he sees some, somebody out there talking to him, commanding him. That's the force of the truth on him, all right? He sees that he has to accept that. He can't but obey what his intellect is telling him in that case, all right? But it's all, but seeing an angel commanding him to do this, all right, with that kind of force, all right, is simply the product of a very, very vivid imagination translating a truth that he has grasped through his intellect, all right, into that concrete representation, okay? 
So what's happening when, a, when the Bible says that Abraham was commanded by God, that is through an angel, to take Isaac and go to, this, to the land of Moriah and offer him, it means that Abraham grasped some truth, and we'll have to see what that truth is, all right, which is, into, which is imagination, then translated into the image of taking Isaac, commanded by an angel, all right, who's actually talking to him. Both times that, that Abraham receives an angelic command to sacrifice Isaac, and then the second time when the angel tells him, don't touch the child, okay? It's not that God or somebody else, an angel, is talking to Abraham. It's Abraham's own intellect reasoning to a conclusion. The first conclusion is, is, is expressed with his imagination as sacrifice Isaac. The second, the second opinion that he reasons to is don't sacrifice Isaac, okay? Both of them are products of Abraham's own reasoning. So what we have to do now is to figure out what was the reasoning, the argument that led him first to think that you ought to sacrifice your son, Isaac, and then that you don't sacrifice a human being, a child, okay? Those appear to be contradictory. Okay, so what, is, what were the two arguments and why was the second one stronger, all right, than the first one, okay? Well, I'm only going to talk again about the communal welfare. I'm going to give one argument, all right? There are different arguments corresponding to the, inner, the external and the inner meaning. On the first meaning, the external meaning of the parable, that has to do with communal welfare, Abraham is a prototype for the founder of a divine community. Question. Why should a founder's love and fear of God require the sacrifice of a human being, let alone your own son and heir? And Maimonides' answer is spelled out in 2A on the handout, okay? But I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to su summarize it. It's this passage down here, all right? So let me just summarize it for you. Maimonides emphasizes how unimaginably great was the sacrifice demanded of Abraham. Yet, he says, Abraham did not act out of passion, shock, or fear of, when he says fear of God, he doesn't mean fear of punishment if he disobeys God, okay? Instead, he says, Abraham acted out of exhaustive reflection, thought, correct understanding, consideration of the truth of his command. And the proof is that Abraham journeyed for three days to Mount Moriah, which Maimonides takes to be three days of deliberation, thinking about what he should do. What was Abraham deliberating during those three anxious days? And why does Maimonides place so much emphasis on deliberation? Let me begin with the content of that deliberation. We're told that Abraham loves Isaac, his son, the seed of his religious community, more than any property, more even than his own life, Abraham's own life, more than anything else in the world. Abraham could offer or make no greater sacrifice than Isaac. Nonetheless, the sacrifice of Isaac was apparently not as great a sacrifice as it would have been for Abraham not to obey God's command, or the commandment what his intellect told him. 
It may be that the sacrifice of Isaac was, as Maimondes writes, so extraordinary that one would not imagine that human nature was capable of it. But not fulfilling the command must have been still more unimaginable than the unimaginable. Abraham then faces two mutually exclusive options. Either sacrifice the most valuable thing in the world for him in the most valuable thing for him in the world or sacrifice a command of God. That is what his intellect tells him. So by choosing after thought and deliberation to fulfill and not to sacrifice God's command by sacrificing Isaac, Abraham demonstrates his ultimate incomparable and exclusive love and fear of God. In other words, he has two options here. Either you obey God's command, all right, what his intellect tells him he ought to do, to what's demanded of love and fear of God, or as a parent, you don't sacrifice your son. He's too precious to you. Had he chosen not to sacrifice Isaac, he would have preferred his own love and fear for his son over love and fear of God. Okay? All right? Therefore, by choosing to sacrifice Isaac, he's choosing love and fear of God over his own personal love for his child. Okay? As we mentioned earlier, in medieval Germany, or Ashkenaz, as it was called in Hebrew, this script was played out in frightening reality. The Akedah, the Binding of Isaac story, became a topos, a locus, a center, for acts of martyrdom, not only of oneself, but of one's children. Faced with, demand, with crusader demands to convert, to violate the Torah, sacrifice God's commandments, rabbis sacrificed not only their own lives, but also those of their children and with their own hands, invoking the example of Abraham at the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. And acts of this kind were not limited to Germany. Maimonides also would have known of the forced conversion and mass martyrdom of Jews in the Maghreb or North Africa, and the tragic story of the martyrdom of the Jews of Sigomasa under the Almohads. These were Berber um, um, Muslims who invaded southern Spain and forced everyone to convert to Islam, and because of which Maimonides' family had to flee from, Islam, from, from southern Spain. For many, to die for God rather than transgress or sacrifice even the least of, his, of God's commandments became the highest expression of devotion to God. It's the truest sanctification of the name of God. The litmus test, if you want a litmus test for whether someone truly loves and fears God, and fears God, what do you do? You see whether or not he's willing to die for God. That's the true test. Give up everything for God. Now, the idea that one should die or allow oneself to be killed rather than violate certain or any commandment in Hebrew, this is called yehareg v'al ya'avor, be killed rather than transgress even a single commandment that has a long, legitimate history in rabbinic law. But why should love of God's commands and fear of him make one believe that one ought to die for God, martyr oneself and child? One rabbinic precedent 
is the figure of Rabbi Akiba. I don't know whether you ever studied that. This was a rabbi in the time of the Mishnah who actively sought out martyrdom by teaching Torah in public in open contempt of a Roman prohibition in order to fulfill the commandment of Deuteronomy 6.5, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. So he, that was a verse he, he actually interprets and proclaims on the occasion of the martyrdom. He waited his whole life for the opportunity to fulfill. In other words, he thought that was a commandment, that you should martyr yourself and love God with all your soul. And he was waiting his whole life for the opportunity to be martyred, to die for God, to show him that true love. A second source, which I'll just mention, was one of my Mandi's philosophical predecessors in Spain, Bachir ibn Pakuda, right, who was a Neoplatonist. So he thought that we were sort of trapped in our bodies in this world. And so dying for God was a way of freeing oneself from one's body to simply rejoin God all right, in the heaven, to become with him. And the striking thing about Bachya, and, and that's the way one shows one's lo one loves something if he's really willing to give up his body in order to return to God in heaven. And his model of a God lover is Abraham. And he says, Abraham, who demonstrated his total love of God through, among other things, his willingness to surrender his own soul for love of God by his promptness and zealousness in the matter of Isaac, that is in the Akedah. According to Bachya, in killing Isaac, Abraham was killing himself. One way for the individual to martyr himself is by killing by martyring his child. So he simply sees the child as, were, as an extension of the father, as part of the father, okay? So within this, this, this kind of rubric, dying or martyrdom is conceptually linked with love, fear, okay? The death of oneself and one's children for the sake of God. Dying or martyrdom is the full expression of the ultimate love of God that means emptying oneself of everything other than God. Your body, your thought, you simply give yourself up, all right? Sacrifice everything simply to be with God. And that, that seems to be the kind of argument that moved Maimonides, that moved Abraham, according to Maimonides, to think, for Abraham as a philosopher, to think that he ought to martyr Isaac, all right? That's one's true love of God. The limit says it's to die for God. Okay? Push comes to shove. You want to test whether somebody really loves God. See whether he's willing to give up his life. Okay? Pinch him a little bit. Make him suffer. Okay? And then we'll see whether he's really willing to give it all up out of love of God. So that's why, why Abraham all right, thought that he ought to sacrifice Isaac. Because that was a way in which giving up everything, as it were, his own life, all right, for love of God. But if that's the argument that might move one to die for God, Maimonides, as you remember, also argues that the full story of the Akedah proves that such love and fear of God is excessive, that there's a limit to the love and fear of God, which is shown by the end of the story that he doesn't sacrifice Isaac. So if there's a limit, that means that originally, his original thought to sacrifice Isaac was excessive. Okay? 
what Maimonides means by excessive emerges in a comment he makes on child sacrifice in the course of his explanation of the commandments of the Torah in the last part of the guide. He explains that the primary intention of the Mosaic Law was to eliminate all idolatry from Israel, and in particular what he calls Sabianism. Dong here, I don't remember your last name, spoke about this in Beijing. Okay. What he means by Sabianism is a star-worshipping, magical, astrological, superstitious culture in which ancient Israel, he believed, had been nurtured. They lived among the Sabians, this kind of idolatrous, astrological culture. Maimonides pre-repeatedly pre states that what's wrong with Sabianism is the burden and excess it imposed on its followers, by which he means that the Sabian practices were not only unnecessarily demanding, but also that they expressed untrue opinions and required useless practices which brought about a waste of lives in vain and futile things. And in contrast, he tells us, the Mosaic commandments are equibalanced. They're perfectly balanced. They're moderate. They're manners of worship in which there is no excess and no burden, no hardship. Okay? As an example, Maimonides tells his reader, and this is number three on the handout. says, compare a right. <coughs> People have this? It's on page three. Command a right in which, for reasons of divine worship, a man burns his child with one in which he burns a young pigeon. This was the worship they rendered to the god, their gods, namely burning a child. What corresponds to this in our worship is the burning of a young pigeon or even a handful of flour. So what's wrong, excessive, about child sacrifice is also that it's useless, vain, and false. And Maimonides points to three mistaken, deeply mistaken motivations for martyrdom for either of oneself or of one's child, so the kind of child sacrifice. Some think that you demonstrate your true love and fear of God by blind obedience to God's commands, especially when it involves dying. When you let yourself be killed simply because God commands. In other words, you want to test, you want to test whether somebody really loves God, then do just obey whatever he tells you for whatever reason, without knowing any reason for it. Alright? If he tells you to kill yourself, you really love God, you'll kill yourself. Okay? That's mistaken. Maimonides thinks because God, it assumes that God issues his commandments for no reason. In fact, all of God's commandments have a reason, and the reason is always a human good. It's never a good for God. God gets no benefit from what we do. We benefit. So God's commandments were all commanded to us for a reason, and the reason is that they improve us. They benefit human beings. Certainly killing oneself never benefits oneself, right? So this idea of love of God is if he benefits from, from your killing yourself, all right, that's completely foreign to Maimonides, all right? That's not his kind of God. Others think, <clears throat> others think that dying or sacrificing their young out of love for God is in turn reciprocal, loved by God. 
but he says, in fact, all such cultic practices are hateful and odious to God. And finally, something that dying itself is the purest, highest worship of the one God. And that for Maimonides is a false, it's even an idolatrous belief. Why? Idolatry for Maimonides is believing that God is a body, that he's corporeal, completely opposite of Christianity, all right? God is not a body, okay? If you kill yourself out of love of God, that's a kind of bodily worship, killing your body. So even if you're doing it for the God that you believe doesn't have a body, if you think his highest worship is a kind of bodily action, killing oneself, right? Which after all is a body, your own, your own life. Being alive is, is being alive with a body, as a substance with a body, all right? Okay? That's idolatrous from Maimonides. Martyring oneself, killing one's body, is an idolatrous mode of <laughs> worshiping the one God, even if you believe that that God himself doesn't have a body. Okay? So with this background, we can now say how Maimonides read the Akedah as a parable expressing wisdom concerning communal welfare. Abraham's initial decision to sacrifice Isaac out of love and fear in God, however noble his motive was, that this was to, a way of worshiping the, the God of Israel, was nonetheless cut in the same mold as, Sab as the Sabian rite in which, in which one burns a child for God. For all of my mind of for all of Abraham's opposition to Sabian idolatry, at that moment when he went up to Mount Moriah, he was in the grip of the Sabian picture, the Sabian psychology, that one expresses one's ultimate love of God by dying for God. That the test of one's love of God is whether one is willing even to die for him. So like the Sabian practice, Abraham's attempted sacrifice of Isaac was an expression of excessive, false, vain, and useless, in a word, idolatrous love and fear of God. Worship that's not excessive, fear of God within the proper limits, is exemplified by Abraham's sacrifice of the ram. When the angel tells Abraham, this is in 2B on the handout, okay? So it's in, do you have it? Go back to 2. It's a section B, right? This is on page two, okay? If you look at B, about eight lines down, accordingly the angel said to Abraham, for now I know that you fear God. Meaning that through the act, because of which the term fear of God is applied to you, now I know that you fear God, all right? The act because of which fearing God is applied to you through that all the Adamites will know the limits of the fear of the Lord, of the, what the limits of the fear of the Lord are, okay, the limits are not sacrificing Isaac. So Abraham demonstrates his true fear of God by not killing Isaac and instead sacrificing the ram, okay? In other words, the act to which Abraham, to which the angel is referring is not Abraham's original willingness to sacrifice Isaac, but the fact that the second time when his intellect tells him, no, what I thought I was going to do is idolatrous, is wrong, killing Isaac, 
Okay? That's idolatry. That's not the proper, that's not love of and fear of God within the limits. All right? That's, that's when he doesn't kill Isaac. That's when the angel tells him, now I know that you fear God. Because you recognize the proper limit of the fear of God, which is not to sacrifice a human being. That's not what love of God wants, or right, requires. That's excessive. Proper fear of God, as the aim of the Mosaic law really is. It's to achieve that state, what's called living the life of the commandments, obeying the Mosaic law, right? Living an ordinary life, all right? But in obedience to God's commandments, letting God's, letting God's law shape not how you live rather than dying for God. That's the proper fear of God, okay? That's the proper love of, love, of God. Living the correct, the proper life rather than in a desperate moment showing that you're willing to die for him, martyr yourself for him, okay? That's excessive. Within the limits, all right, is living the right kind of life, being good, performing the right moral actions, performing the ritual laws, all right, teaching, studying, under, acquiring knowledge, all right. That's the love of God, which is within the limits and is proper, okay? And <clears throat> that doesn't mean, all right, for Maimonides, that the law is ideal, is perfect. What it means is that the law is the best possible accommodation of the ideal to the necessities of human nature. Remember Maimonides' statement that God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his sole child and heir was something unimaginable given human nature. That's not to say that there can't be intellectually sound arguments for martyrdom for certain individuals in defined circumstances. There are times when we're called upon to die. For example, you're called upon certain circumstances to die for your country in a war that has a noble cause, where you're really fighting for civilization, where you're really fighting you know, for the right values, say against you know, enemies like Al-Qaeda, right, or against Hitler, okay? people who really were destructive. Then it is proper to die for your country. All right? So there are circumstances where martyrdom we're willing to die for your for values is justified. But Maimonides' point is that given human nature, which is constituted by more than the intellect, by all the emotional, sensible, psychic, non-rational faculties that feed into our imaginations, a law for the community that demands martyrdom is indeed unimaginable. That is, it's not a normative option for the normal member of society. Such an ideal directed at martyrdom focuses on extreme moments, crises, to identify the true worshiper of God. Martyrdom doesn't allow compromises. There's no accommodation. There's no, you know, middle road, all right, for different people, different personalities. But a law precisely because it is directed to the whole community, has to limit its ideals to the contours of human nature, what different individuals can bear. And this Maimonidean fear of God achieved through the commandments, it's not Bachya's, where you give up everything to, to love God, 
Rather, it's reverence of the kind. Re what we talk about is reverence nowadays. We talk about a God-fearing life. In other words, an individual who knows in each circumstance where he is, what, who he is, what's required, his place, all right? He recognizes the limits, all right, that he has to live by, okay? And that's not a kind of fear of God that would move anybody to die for God. It's a, it's a kind of fear of God that leads you to live a certain kind of life within moral limits, within intellectual limits, all right, and religious limits. I won't read it through, but if you look in number five on the handout, those are various laws from Maimondi's code where he describes how an individual who enters the ancient temple ought to behave. It says in my temple, if you look at number one and five, it's a positive commandment to be in awe of the temple. In my temple you shall fear. What he means by fearing the temple is not giving up your life for the temple, not dying for the temple. He doesn't even mean sacrifice of animals. He means the individual should be there in a state of respect, a state of reverence. Shouldn't spit there. He shouldn't run through it. He shouldn't, you know, he shouldn't sneeze there, all right? He shouldn't, he shouldn't use, if you have to go from here to there and the temple's in the middle, don't use it as a shortcut. That's not fearing, that's not reverence for the temple, all right? You go into the temple for specific purposes. You know where you are, who you are, what sort of a place that is, what's demanded of that site, okay? <coughs> that's the t type of, that's the type of, um, that's the type of fear of God that he has in mind, okay? Let me conclude, I just want to conclude, all right, with one problem in the story, and then just to give you a sense of how, of, of how Maimonides, in his legal work also, um, addresses this. If you look, <clears throat> if you look at the text of the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac, it's very strange. In verse 1, he tells Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac, as we've seen, all right? In verse 11 and 12, the angel appears for a second time and tells, and tells Abraham, all right, that, that um, he should not sacrifice Isaac. Don't touch the child, okay? But then he, in, in the later verses, all right, in verses 16, he returns and he blesses Abraham and he tells Abraham that I'm going to multiply your seed, all right, and you're going to become a father of all nations, all right. Why? Because of your, because you did not withhold your son Isaac from me. Here he seems to praise Abraham for having been willing, all right. So here he seems to approve of the first reason that Abraham had, in other words, the idea of martyrdom. But I thought. The second reason not to sacrifice Isaac was an argument, was a conclusion that the proper worship of God is not dying for God, it's living a certain kind of life for God. Why, how do you account for this, what I call the ambivalence of the story? That although the end of the day is that, is that Abraham does not sacrifice Isaac and dying for God is not the ideal for the community, Still, the angel seems to approve, or God seems, the text seems to approve of the idea that he was willing, all right, to martyr, to martyr Isaac. <laughs> I want to I I suggest that Maimonides addresses this ambiguity, all right, um, in his critique, <clears throat> in, his, in his Mishnah Torah, in his code, 
despite his critique of the religious psychology of dying for God, that's the psychology that underlies martyrdom, okay? And look, and that all of you know this today in the case of radical Islamic fundamentalism, all right? You know, people that are all these terrorists, all right? I mean, which is not normative Islam. I mean, normative Islam condemns this as well. But these radical Islamic terrorists, fundamentalists, they believe that the greatest way that they can love their God is by dying for him, right? You have to, you know, you're, you're doing an extreme act killing other people as well, but they're dying for God as well, all right? That's what Maimonides is criticizing, that kind of a psychology, okay? Nonetheless, in the Mishnah Torah, as I said, there's, a, there's a, a legal history, according to Jewish law, there is a place for martyrdom, and Maimonides codifies those laws, okay? He includes the laws of martyrdom in his code. He spells out all the Talmudic rules that govern martyrdom, draws all the distinctions. The entire legal apparatus of, of, of rabbinic law, which sees a place for martyrdom, all right, remains in place. On the other hand, he offers an alternative, a non-martyrological, and he prays, I'm sorry, and he praises figures like this Rabbi Akiva that I mentioned earlier, but also Daniel, who in, 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 Chronicle, in, in the book of Daniel, martyrs himself, all right, for God. But on the other hand, he offers an alternative, non-martyrological paradigm of the one who sanctifies the name of God. I used this phrase earlier, the traditional euphemism in rabbinic thought, for the martyr is the one who sanctifies the name of God. In Hebrew, it's kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name of God. And his alternative paradigm, all right, of, of the one who sanctifies the name of God is again, listen to this, he's the person, the sage, who's extremely exacting of his own behavior and who acts within the line of the law, whose interpersonal relations are always good-natured and friend-like, who respects even those who do not respect him, who's honest in business, pious and learned, loved, praised, and imitated by all. In other words, the one who lives his life in this kind of a life, even if it's not always perfect, not the one who dies rather than compromise, rather than compromise the law in the least way, transgress a single commandment. That's Maimonides' preferred model of the one who reenacts, who reenacts the Akedah. And his most telling acknowledgement of this, um, his preference for living the life of the commandments, the life of the Torah, rather than dying for God, as the highest form of sanctification of the name of God comes out of the be beginning of his codification of the laws of martyrdom. Okay, If you look at number six on the handout, this is from his Mishnah Torah, his code of law, all right, from the laws concerning the sanctification of the name. Okay, Which again, keep in mind, it traditionally means, that's a phrase which traditionally in rabbinic literature refers to the martyr. He writes, all members of the house of Israel are commanded to sanctify, to sanctify the name of God. As it said, 
This is in Leviticus. I shall be sanctified among the children of Israel. And they are warned not to profane it, as it said, and you shall not profane my holy name. The phrase that's used here, sanctify the name of God, Kiddush Hashem, is, as we said, the classic rabbinic euphemism. It's a phrase, all right, for martyrdom. Maimonides continues, how do we fulfill this, these commandments? Now, given the traditional meaning of the phrase, Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of the name, what we, what we would expect to find would be an answer like this. When an idolater arises and violently coerces an Israelite to transgress any one of the commandments mentioned in the Torah under the threat of death, he should allow himself to be killed rather than transgress the commandment. But instead, what is Maimonides right? When this idolatry arises, he should transgress the commandment and not allow himself to be killed. For it said concerning the commandments, which a man shall, do, man shall do them, he shall live by them. This implies he shall live by them and not die by them. And if he suffers death and does not commit the transgression, he's to blame for his own life. Yeah. It's a su for his own death, I'm sorry. In other words, it's a suicide. It's not martyrdom. This individual has murdered himself. It's nothing but remarkable that Maimonides opens these laws of the sanctification of the name of God, Kiddush Hashem, the traditional name for martyrdom, with a case that requires one not to <laughs> martyr oneself, but instead to commit a transgression rather than be killed. His proof text, Leviticus 18.5, tells it all. The primary way to sanctify the name of God is by living according to the commandments, not by dying in order to sacrifice the performance of a law. And the person who, the self-righteous individual says, no, no, I'm so religious that I'm not going to transgress anything. I'm even going to die rather than, you know, rather than, um, let me give an example. What's a simple example? Rather than, um, than, let's say, not observe the Sabbath. And let's say not transgress some rabbinic law concerning the Sabbath. That individual, Maimandi says, is blameworthy. He's a, it's a suicide. He's a murderer of himself. Okay? There's no room for supererogatory action, for acting beyond the, the, the duties of the law when it comes to living and dying. <laughs> One dies only under very special circumstances, certain individuals who are of the category that they can die for the law. The normal member of the community, right, does not die for any commandment. Idolatry, yes, he dies for that, all right? And certain cases of national survival to show that the people are gonna survive when somebody, you know, makes somebody transgress the commandment in order to eliminate the people of Israel, then you transgress, then you have to die because it's a case of national identity, national survival. But in normal cases, one sanctifies the name of God, all right, by living the life of the law, not by, not by the psychology of dying for the deity, okay? Um, he takes the story of the Akedah, which was used, which had a long history of justifying martyrdom, and turns it around by focusing on the end of the story, the fact that Abram does not sacrifice Isaac, 
to convert to propose to us an alternative model of what the truly holy life consists in, the sanctified life, sanctification of the name of God. It's living a life of the law rather than in a desperate moment showing that you're willing to die for God. Okay, and let me stop here, all right? But that's Maimonides' explanation of the Akedah, of the story of, of the binding of Isaac.